Welcome to TMZ Live, Harvey Levin here. Charles here. Abby Lee Miller from Dance Moms um, was doing a podcast, seemed innocent enough, talking about her love, appreciation of Tom Cruise, all the right Other moves. things, too, but yes. Other things, but, but it was very light, you would think. And then this happened. Yeah, I mean, how do you go from Tom Cruise loves this cake to I love high school boys? That's what Abby Lee Miller said. Um, here is the clip. She was on the uh, Sophia with an F podcast. Um, and as we said, Tom Cruise was the topic, which led to... This. her favorite Tom Cruise movie, or one of her favorites. Okay, Abby, you are, you Have just, you seen what? All the Right Moves? No. That's the best movie ever. With him in it? Oh my God, yes, All the Right Moves. He's a high school football player. Oh my Ooh. God. That's my downfall. I like the high school football players. I still like them. <laughs> I like the coaches. Not one that and used I to did. be in high school, but one that is, yes. So, Sophia tried to throw her a, yeah, a, pres life, a preserver. life preserver. She was like, I like the coaches. And Abby, I am baffled. I mean, when I, I read this at first, when I saw it, and I- It and seemed I, and wrong. I, and I thought, right. oh, I get it. Abby is saying that when she was in high school, that was her downfall. She went for the, you know, the captain of the football team. Nope. That's not what she said there. No, and she made a point now, of going back. Yeah, she thing. went back and kind of reinforced it, underscored it. Yeah, she underscored by saying not the ones who used to be <laughs> in there, the ones that still are. And obviously she's taken a lot of heat for this on social media. People pointing to the fact that Dance Moms was a show where she worked with kids, so they say that that's a little weird. She has not come out and, and clarified anything, although I think she kind of clarified what she meant on the podcast. Uh, but be interesting to see kind of where she takes this. I, I, I just, and again, look, we haven't heard if, if she's going to offer an explanation. Maybe she won't. But I just, when I heard that, I just thought, if a man said that, rightfully so, he would be excoriated. Right. It should be. Right. But, well, she's taking heat. She is taking heat on ooh. this thing. But, it, yeah, it, it, it is bizarre. Um, and and well, I'll, yeah, I mean, look, I'll give you the equivalent. Uh, when people if, 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 a, if a guy had said that about the Dance Mom show, right, right, I mean right. he would be exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I there are <laughs> countless podcasts, and people have to go on those shows, and maybe they feel like maybe she thought she was leading like to a funny ha ha moment. But when but, but when and she actually she had the funny moment, right? She had already and, had the funny moment, right? Let and, it go, and the host was willing to say, look, I, I will pivot here and we'll talk about coaches, we'll talk about adults. I will say, um, and I don't know what went into the production on this podcast, but right after Abby says that answer, there's a very obvious edit and it cuts to Sophia just saying, well, Abby, thank you so much for being here. And they sort of wrap things up. That's kind of the interesting thing too, because right, either Abby may have continued to take the joke too far, or maybe she said, ha ha, I'm kidding or whatever. And Sophia just kind of overthought, hey, I should include this part as well. Yeah. And that's kind of where this thing could get, uh, could get messy too. Yeah. We have no idea whether they're going to release what was right. edited Unedited. out and we don't know what it is. I mean, it could be it could be two radically different things. Could be. But, but as it stands, <laughs> the edit that 
the world is seen and heard. As my Aunt Annie says, it is what it is. <laughs> hey, I'm John from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, hearing that a woman who built her career at a dance studio super close to me, even working with children, say that on a podcast like that was super unsettling to me, man. I just heard the clip for the first time when you played it now and her doubling down and clarifying like that, that it's a still in high school interest to her is even creepier. And uh, if that really is her truth and it's not just some off-color podcast, joke that I really do think she needs to um, uh, reassess what's legal when it comes to the romantic relationships that she pursues. Well, we don't, look, she's, she didn't yeah. say she did didn't say anything. she's pursuing anything, right. but she just said that's her jam. Impure thoughts, at the very least. Very Jimmy Carter. You remember oh. that? Yes, yes. Lust in my heart. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we're going to move on. All right, yes, to Joe Jonas and his divorce from Sophie Turner which he, I think, very clearly is referencing on stage now. So the, the uh, Jonas Brothers are on tour. They had a show here in L.A. this weekend. Dodger, Dodger Stadium. Stadium. Yeah. Um, packed. Packed out Dodger Stadium. people. Um, and at a point here, Joe makes what is obviously a reference to his divorce, saying that he's had a rough week, and then said something that we got to talk about. I just want to say... If you don't hear from these lips, don't believe it, okay? And thank you, everyone, for the love and support. So me and my family love you guys. So this kind of a vague reference to um, obviously all the stories that have come out in the wake of right. Joe filing for divorce from Sophie. Um, we don't know necessarily what he's what he's referring, referring to. to. Right. I mean, there have been a lot of stories, including our stories, sure. um, about, uh, you know, about what happened here. Our stories are not only accurate, but a lot come from that camp. Yeah, right. it's, so. it's a very confusing statement slash non-statement, right? Because he's saying on stage to everybody, like, hey, if you don't hear it from me, it's not true. But he doesn't say <laughs> what is true and what's not and exactly what he's referring to. But a lot of fans are not buying whatever he's trying to say. Um, they think that he's, by saying this, he's trying to look like the good guy. And everyone's kind of saying, like, well, where were you when Sophie Turner was getting, you know, a ton of backlash for these stories about her being out and partying and Joe not liking that. Like, he didn't come to her defense at all. But we know behind the scenes, this is a pretty messy divorce. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that he chose to say anything at all. Because yeah. they've had shows, they had shows last week, and he didn't say anything referring they, to the divorce. He, he, he was in Vegas why? Friday night and didn't say anything. Yeah. Um, so why now say anything at all, especially when you know that you're not going to affirmatively say what is going on, so why even bring it up? Look, he's the one that filed. And mm -hmm. he obviously, we will say this, and again, it's not coming from his lips, it's coming from ours, so believe us or not. But he, they had been having issues for six months, at least six months. And um, their lifestyles uh, had become very different. Now, you can say that's judgmental, but the reality is that that's what happens with lots of relationships where lifestyles and goals and everything become different. And it doesn't mean that one person's good and one person's bad. It just means they that they're different. an assessment that this doesn't work. Now, there are other things. Obviously, we talked about this ring camera video, audio video. Right. Um, we don't know what was on that. We do know that whatever was on it was the final straw for him. For Joe, right. So again, you know, it, it, it's not favoring one side or the other. This is kind of what it is. 
Yeah, and people and people clearly took a stand on that. But the, you know, you've got outsiders taking a stand on what's going on with them. That was just the reality. Yeah. But also, people in their close circle are seemingly taking sides as well. So Sophie was very close with Priyanka Chopra, which is Nick Jonas's uh, wife, and then also Danielle, which is Kevin's wife. And you know, Priyanka's done stories. She's done interviews where she said that she considered Sophie a sister. There's tons of photos of them together. But interestingly enough, over the weekend at this concert, Priyanka posted a photo with Nick you know, seemingly saying, like, I'm standing with the Joe bros during this nasty divorce. But, of course, you know, when it comes to a family split, you kind of do got to take a side. But, yeah, it seems like Sophie's all on her own. And the brothers all embraced and hugged Joe on stage. It's not affecting their um, careers, for sure, because no. <laughs> um, they, they are packing houses left and right. Um, and they've been going all over the country in the United States. As a matter of fact, she, she's still, as far as we know, is still in England, um, she was doing a movie there. He's in the United States. He has the kids right now. Um, we don't know what happens when she comes back, how yep. they're going to arrange this. Um, and as far as we know, nothing's been done yet. Certainly nothing's been done in court. What's up, guys? JT calling from Baltimore. Um, obviously, there's an elephant in the concert hall. Like, I feel like he had to say something about it. But I also have another take on it. I think a lot of their music could have to do with like relationships and stuff. And he almost wanted the fans to relate some of his music to the relationship. Um, and I, I support the move, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's just it was an odd statement because it's like, yeah, just believe me. I'm not saying anything, but just believe me. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the problem. Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis uh, think that people have them all wrong. They've been getting blasted for writing letters in support of Danny Masterson's sentencing. It came out, the contents of the letter were released, and there were a lot of people who feel that they were disrespecting Danny Masterson's victims. Uh, he was convicted of two rapes, and so Ashton and Mila really I want to underscore this. So what they were doing was this ha This did not have to do with the there are two phases of a trial, the guilt phase and the sentencing phase of the person who's found guilty. This had to do solely sentencing. with the sentencing phase where people do write letters in the probation department weighs in. Um, we saw this. The victims lot. have their statement. Family of the convicted person have their statement, and then the judge considers it all in determining what sentence should be handed down. Well, the backlash became severe enough that Ashton and Mila felt uh, they wanted to explain exactly why they had written this letter. We are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. A couple months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. The letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. They were intended for the judge to read. Um, and not to undermine the testimony of the victims or re-traumatize them in any way. We would never want to do that. And we're sorry if that has taken place. It is really interesting that, um, again, this, when, when people write these letters, this is a very common thing 
in criminal trials because judges have discretion in deciding how much time to give somebody who's convicted now, of a charge. Now, I, I will say, it, it is true, though, that when they write this letter, and by the way, we heard this during the Tory Lanez case as well, there were letters written, Iggy Azalea famously wrote It happens all the time. I mean, this is and, a- And she got the same backlash. Right, I mean, this is a standard thing but that happens. It in, is true that when they wrote this letter, they knew that he was already convicted. Right. And I think the people who are criticizing them, they feel like that's insensitive. But I, I don't, you know, look, I get their side of it. This was their friend and their well, it's not Danny's just their, family. But, but it's, it's, them, it's not just their side. What it, and, it, and this doesn't. No, I didn't say their side. I said it, this is their friend. Right. Danny's family reached out to them and asked for them to explain what their relationship was. I, with I, I, I just want to make one point. This is not only common. It's necessary because when judges look at how to sentence somebody, I mean, this is in the probation report. They get into what their life was like before. They, it, these, are, these are things that happen all the time in these trials, and it's never done or meant to uh, undermine or overturn the verdict. The verdict is the verdict. He is guilty. And now the issue is how much sentencing, what, what does he get? How long does he get? How, how long does he get? And that's what this is about. I think on just the moral ground, and that's kind of what people are upset about. Morally, if you have a friend and you believe that they have raped women, then how do you, how do you actually write a letter on their behalf? You know what I mean? I think most people, what they're saying online is, well, that's that, the, the decision's easy. You don't write a letter on their behalf. You say, go to hell because you've raped women. Like, how can we be, even be friends? So that's kind of why I think there's backlash here. They're kind of trying to, to they're kind of trying to be on the fence here about like, oh, it's like, we're not speaking to the actual conviction. We're talking to his moral character, but his moral character is wrapped up in the conviction, I think. So anyway, so there's that. I want to say that there, there's been backlash to their apology. People have said it comes across as scripted and, and they don't, it's unclear what they're even really saying. But Ashton Kutcher specifically this weekend was experiencing a reckoning of sorts because all these different clips of his over the years, dating back to the early 2000s, were surfacing. And I gotta say, they're bad. It, he said and has apparently done some icky, icky things, specifically with Mila Kunis too. There's a clip going viral in which he says, look, I had a side bet with Danny Masterson on the set of That 70s Show when Mila Kunis was hired as a 14-year-old when we were kissing. If the scene required us to kiss, Danny Masterson bet me 10 bucks if I could French kiss her, and it sounds like he did. Emilia Kunis in this Rosie O'Donnell interview is yucking it up. So all of it is gross, all of it is bad, and yes, Ashton Kutcher, I guess some people are saying he's getting what he deserves in this, at this point. You know, look, I mean, I don't think that Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher were- Are pro-rape. Were pro-rape. Right. Um, they were in any way, you know, co-signing on what he did. Um, but that what they're doing is they're, they're giving the right. judge the information that they had about him so that the judge could hand down an appropriate sentence, and the sentence was 30 years to life. Jesse in Denver, uh, I don't know why they would make a video like this. They look borderline hungover. It looks like it's 11 o'clock in the morning. Danny Masterson's life is straight up over. I don't know why you wouldn't distance yourself. There's a civil suit moving forward. I don't understand why you wouldn't immediately drop him as a friend and completely disassociate yourself. The accuser is the person who's bringing all this old footage forward. Now everybody wants to know what happened on the set of that 70s show. Yeah, I, I get we're it sort did, of explaining I, I the process, say, but it is. That video did feel really scripted. Strange. Yeah, I mean, it felt like 
two news anchors uh, on local news because you saw them trading off, and it was clear they had points. I'm not sure that was the most effective way of doing it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to move on. All right, Uh, yes, moving on to what is clearly a change um, in philosophy for Kylie Jenner and Timothy Chalamet, who for months stayed, did everything they could, including having decoy cars and things to stay out of the public eye. So they're at the U.S. Open this weekend, and again, this is just like the last time we saw them out in public, all over each other, like very handsy as a couple. So they're not only going out in public, they're very public places, um, but there's a lot of PDA going on. So the so, question is, what's the what why, change? Why the, why the change? Yeah, I, there is something interesting about this. Is it he that is, they've finally decided that this is a serious relationship because they're sort of feeling each other out, so to speak? Um, in the first few months, I'm going to be I'm going to be really cynical about this. Okay, he's got a movie. I like com- that. He's got a movie coming out, Willy Wonka. He does. The problem is, he and he can't, can't promote he it. Can't promote the movie because right. of the strike. So how do you get in the public eye? Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm not saying this is a fake relationship because I don't right. think it is. Because it's been they've been together long enough. Right. But they've been together kind of under the radar, and now they're right there, front and center, making out every time they go out. And I think it. I think it. Honestly, I don't even know if that's cynical. I think that's uh, logical. <laughs> that's good how business. I see it. Yeah. I think it's a good point, but on the contrary, you got to think. Last week they were in Los Angeles at the Beyonce concert. That's Kylie's home turf. But now they're going home to where Timothy's lives. He, he you know, he's a New Yorker. U.S. Opens in the in the Queens, uh, or in Queens, I should say. But I <laughs> feel like. <laughs> but I feel like. Uh, I feel like. Hey, you know, if maybe there, uh, we don't know if Timothy's now introducing her to his close family friends. Uh, uh, maybe that could be the case. Hey, look at this. Come on. Yeah. No, for sure. And after this, they went to the Brooklyn. Uh, for no, <laughs> right. <laughs> An incredible story here about determination, uh, perseverance, and a family's fight uh, to find justice um, for a deceased loved one. His name is Scott Johnson, and he died in Australia in was it 1988? 1988. He had moved from the United States. Uh, to be with his partner, he um, he came out as gay and moved there, and died mysteriously um, off a cliff uh, in Australia, and the police dismissed this as a suicide. Um, there is one person who never bought that theory, and he butted up against the police. That uh, the police was they, they, they were incredulous toward his brother, um, incredulous, and they, they, they felt he was a nuisance. And this guy, this, I, I'm telling you, I watched this documentary, so it's we're incredible. Gonna, we wanna play a little bit just to set this up for you. It's a four-part docu-series from ABC News Studios called Never Let Him Go. And we're gonna be joined uh, by Scott's brother, Steve, who you're gonna see uh, in this clip here. For 30 years, my brother's death was this mystery. Did he trip? Was he pushed? Did he kill himself? This guy was fearless all of his life. But this person that I knew better than anybody else, I didn't know as well as I thought I did. He came out to both of us, and I was scared. I knew people who were gay. I knew people who had been beaten. I thought he would be an easy target. The coroner said, your brother committed suicide. It was clear from the very outset that there were tensions between the police force and the Johnsons. Committing suicide naked is almost unheard of. 
what's going on here? So this is just remarkable what Scott's brother Steve did. And Steve is joining us right now. Steve, welcome to TMZ Live. Hi, how are you guys? We're good. Your family story um, is incredibly gripping in, in this uh, docuseries here. And I guess the thing that stands out immediately is that you didn't let this go, and it very easily could have been let go, but what was the reason that you felt you were not just gonna take what the police were saying as gospel? Well, a young constable who was in charge of the case at the very beginning told me this was a place where people go to jump. And then he leaned forward and, and said, especially homosexuals, did you know your brother was homosexual? Which I did, uh, he had come out uh, to me years before. And he treated that as if that were an explanation and that should be enough to convince me that uh, he committed suicide. Um, and I, I didn't buy it from the beginning because Scott had just talked to his professor. He was working on his math PhD. His professor just that same day that he, he died had told him that he had clinched uh, the last proof in his math dissertation. The constable was telling me this was a common suicide spot. Mm -hmm. Didn't take me long to establish that it wasn't. Um, and then, uh, and then it was just one reason after another. The police gave me to keep going um, by feeding me falsehoods uh, about the circumstances of Scott's death, and that's really what kept me going. As I watched this documentary, I don't think I ever would have pursued this story because it seemed so improbable that you would ever get answers. And I, I marveled at watching you because the end game seemed fruitless to me almost all the way through. And it must have seemed that way to you to some extent at some point. I, I don't understand how you pursued it for so many years when it was dead end after dead end after dead end. Well, I have to say that the end game kept changing. So. At first, the end game was to reopen the case because I flew to Australia and arrived two days after his body was found and it was already closed. Uh, the police essentially closed it up on the cliff, uh, didn't take any photographs, just packed up my brother's body and um, and called it a day. And um, it wasn't until 17 years later that there was an inquest on the other side of Sydney and some other dramatic cliffs by Bondi Beach uh, where the coroner had established that two men had been killed there, two men that the police had basically called mysterious or suicide. And the coroner uh, determined that they were killed by gay hate assailants who would go to these places where gay men would meet each other. Uh, they called them beats in Australia. And that immediately turned the lights on for me. So this was in 2005, 17 years after Scott died. And so then, as far as I was concerned, the end game was to get the case reopened. And uh, I took the information to the police where my brother died and said, hey, you missed hmm. a body. Um, uh, it clearly is what happened to my brother. And uh, they spent uh, year after year putting obstacles in front of me. And uh, so getting the case open, which we didn't do until 2012, and then getting it determined to be a homicide, which we didn't do until 2017, and then the most remarkable thing, uh, which you'll see in the documentary, is what happened after yeah. after a coroner determined it was a, a homicide. Yep. I cannot fathom why the police went on camera in this documentary. I mean, they looked so bad, and there was arguable corruption. Why? How on earth did you get them, or the producers get them? 
Why did they do this? The woman who was in charge of my brother's case uh, from 2013 until about 2016 is uh, the one that they managed to get on camera. And I, I'd like to let the audience decide what she's all about. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I fully do, but she definitely turned this into a, a war between the police and me. Yep. And you won. <laughs> Thankfully, it turned out that way. Um, and I think she came on camera to explain herself, and I'm not sure it worked. I got to tell you, too, watching it, you just really love your brother. I mean, he seemed like such a good guy, a brilliant guy, and it was such a tragedy. But I think the humanity of Scott really shined through uh, in this docuseries. I'm glad that comes through because... You know, he's a quiet guy, but uh, he had this smile. Everyone liked him immediately. And, you know, his golden um, years were at Caltech in Pasadena. Uh, first time in his life, he was he was the person everyone looked up to. Um, uh, he had been kind of the the guy in in uh, in high school that that got bullied. Uh, but when he got to Caltech, he was he was everyone's idol. So it stayed that way for the rest of his life. Well, it is amazing, Steve, that uh, you and your family got justice uh, for Scott and maybe potentially may get justice for dozens of other families who are going through the same thing. Thank you so much for being with us. It's called um, Never Let Him Go. Never Let Him Go. Um, and I got to tell you, the twists and turns of this are shocking. They are just amazing. Steve, thank you. Thank you both for having me. All right. Appreciate it. Welcome back to TMZ Live. Jason Aldean's concert has become a lightning rod, um, his tour rather, has become a lightning rod for people who really feel strongly about his hit song, Try That in a Small Town. And every time there's controversy, it sells more. <laughs> yeah, and so maybe Jason doesn't mind what happened uh, outside of his show in Chicago this weekend uh, because a group called the Revolution Club of Chicago showed up ready to protest in very, very, um, uh, some people would say very extreme measures that they took during this protest. Jason So, I mean, I gotta say, and we say, if I, because I don't think I did say, this is a, a communist group. It's they a are, communist group. Yes. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense why they're protesting this Jason Aldean song if they're promoting communism, because Jason Aldean's song had nothing to do with that. Well, there's so, another really yeah. huge inherent flaw with this whole thing, whether you agree with them or not. The whole point of the song was you can't get away with that kind of stuff in a small town, and they are in Chicago, which is not a small <laughs> which town. Which is decidedly so they're, not small. they're protesting him by proving his point for him, because right. they wouldn't go to a small town to do right. this. Right. I mean, honestly, like, this footage, Jason would take, and th this would be put in the in the music video to make his point. Oh, that would be the ultimate troll if he made a song about respecting the flag and used that footage in the video. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, Another they number one hit for him. him. Eric, you put it out there. <laughs> they're giving him their fuel for the happen. fire for the flag. But, you know, I mean, it's so interesting that, that people are jumping on this song. This song has nothing to do with the communist movement. No. Just nothing to do with nothing it. Nothing at all to do with that. Um, 
Look, people I, I are think protesting the, just for the sake of protesting the, at this it, point. It, it almost feels like it. I, although I, I will say it does bring you back or me back to the Vietnam War era, I'm sure that where you is. see this because this was a big symbolic issue back then. Um, that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, by the way. Yeah, I, I think that imagery in particular would be upsetting to a lot of people on any day, but the fact that it came the day before 9-11, we we're you know, marking the 22nd anniversary, right. I think that really is not going to cut well for that group. How you doing? My name is Richard Cutright. I'm from Richmond, Virginia. And I think that uh, there was bound to be enemies of the songs. You know, he was talking about beating up old ladies and burning flags and bugging people. And I think that there was, in current times, a, a big group of people who were participating in that stuff. And, you know, if, if they want to show out, like whoever was booking his uh, tours, they are making a huge mistake putting him in Chicago because that is like one of the hip hop capitals. It was bound to be an incident there at the concert. And I think that he handled it pretty well. I think the police handled it well. And yeah, I don't, I don't think they're communist. I think that they're just dis people who disagree with the song more than anything. Well, they, say they're, no, they, they say they're communist. They say they're communist, gonna, that's we're, not our judgment. We're gonna take them at the Right, and, and, and we're, just to, uh, I want to acquit hip hop on that. Yes, Chicago is a big hip hop city. The people who are out there protesting have nothing we're, to do with Nothing to do with hip hop, okay. right. This is an interesting twist uh, with huh. Britney and Kevin. <laughs> because, um, as you know, uh, Britney Spears' ex-husband, Kevin Federline, has moved to Hawaii with his uh, current wife and their kids, including um, his two sons with Britney. And now Kevin feels that he has the kids 100% of the time, which it's, he, the thing is it's been that way, that way for a long time. Well, but there's something happening here, which is their oldest. That's one of them. Their oldest is about to turn 18. Brittany is now paying $40,000 a month to Kevin in child support. So presumably when the kid turns 18, which is soon, they're going to slice some it in reduction. half. Right. But Kevin's lawyer, um, or Kevin, is thinking, maybe I will go back into court and ask for more than what I was getting because I have these kids and have had these kids for years, 100% of the time, even though the custody and the child support is predicated on 50-50. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Sean is the one who is turning 18 soon, and that 40K presumably is 20 for Sean and 20 for, for Jaden. Uh, Presumably, Kevin would ask to keep it at 40 flat because even though one boy is aging out, the other one should get sort of the other half so it all stays flat. And as you said, Kevin and the boys have moved to Hawaii. So the 0% that Brittany was getting even when they were living in California is now really concrete. She can't see them 50% uh, of the time because they live in different spots. So maybe there's something there. Hey, how's it going, guys? Um, it sounds to me, based off what I read, that Kevin living in paradise was more or less... Uh, you could collect child support to 23 over there. So I'm thinking in terms that he moved there just to keep the child support checks going, really. That's just my opinion. Can I just ask real Speaking quick? Speaking of paradise. Is that real or <laughs> no, not? No, he's not coming to us for, he's well, not Nemo. He's really okay. excited about Aquaman. It's cool. Okay. Drew Barrymore has made a decision that is getting her a lot of attention and not, not a lot of it positive. Uh, she is bringing her talk show back. Um, despite the strike still going on, Drew uh, said she's thought long and hard about this and wanted to bring her show back. And a lot of the you know, people who are supporting the writer's strike, um, as well as 
the actor's strike feel like this was a bad move on her part. This is what Drew has said uh, in her defense. She says, I own this choice. We are in compliance with not discussing or promoting film and television that is struck of any kind. I want to be there to provide what writers do so well, which is a way to bring us together or help us make sense of the human experience. A lot of people in SAG-AFTRA are very upset about this because the show uses writers, even though her writers are on strike. Um, but apparently, there will be things written. Um, so obviously, something's... Right. Well, although, well, well you, you, let's get into that. But right. So she went back to work today. There were people who were picketing outside of her studio in New York City. Uh, one of those people who was on the picket line is Josh Gondelman, an Emmy Award-winning writer who's worked on Mrs. Maisel, uh, Jesus and Mero, last week uh, tonight with John Oliver. He's done a lot of incredible work, and he was out there picketing, so he's joining us to talk about this. Josh, welcome to TMZ Live. Hey, Josh. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. We appreciate you coming on. So explain how this works, because we're a little confused. Is Drew using writers as far as you know um i know that her writers are on strike is are there substitute writers coming in or is this just going to be where they wing it yeah i don't know who's writing the words down i don't want to cast dispersions on anyone specifically obviously but drew barrymore's writers are on strike and it's our position as the writers guild of america that writing is a crucial part of the production of this kind of show right like someone's writing down the things that she says even if it's brainstorming making notes whatever goes in prompter that's written work and that's struck work and that's our position and that's why we're picketing if it were possible and i and i don't know Drew's show well enough to say whether this is even possible, could she just come out and sort of ad-lib yeah. uh, the entire show? And if she were doing that, is that, is that, you know, is that kosher with the union, with the Writers Guild? I mean, I don't think there's a kind of show that the host can come out with no preparation and, and just ad-lib the whole thing. It's too hard to make television out of that with literally no written work. And even if they're doing it in a minimalist level, you know, uh, that's still writing. And that's, we, we picketed the shows that came back without writing. I mean, this was before my time, but in 2007 and 2008, the, the host that said, we're not using writers. But clearly there's some kind of preparation, some kind of scripting for what's happening, some words that, that are prepared to say and some bits that are prepared to say. And that's writing work. And, you know, the late night hosts are off. Kelly Clarkson's show went down right away when the writer's strike started. Uh, and, and we're not singling out Drew Barrymore, though. The View has been up and running while their writers are out on strike, too. And we've been picketing there as well. It's it's those two in New York, to the best of my knowledge. But also, the talk is coming back. That's out here in LA. Um, that's though. in LA. That is a show that has writers. So, um, you know, there, there are other shows as well. So does it feel like there might be a crack in the armor here? That there are these shows, the talk is coming back, the view is coming back, Drew Barrymore is coming back. Um, does it feel like people are trying to kind of find an and run around the strike. I mean, that certainly is what it feels like to me. It sounds like people are looking for loopholes, whether it's somebody involved in the show or the networks and the studios themselves. And they've been looking for end runs the whole time. Their contract proposal is just end runs around the union. You know, if they could obliterate us entirely, they would. All we're looking for is a, is a fair deal that pays us fairly for our work. And they're trying to kind of squeeze us out of the business. So I'm not surprised by anything that's happening on, on that side of things. On a personal level, how are you holding up with the strike and, and so any of your other co-workers 
Um, and I know you're currently on John Oliver's staff, correct? Um, I was. I was for a long time, and I'm about to go on uh, do a few stand-up tour dates opening for John. But I, I'm very lucky in that I've been able to tour. I've had other things that, that I can do. I've done some freelance newspaper and magazine writing throughout the strike. But I know it's really, you know, it's hard on a lot of people, and we don't take that lightly. I think we're really trying to provide for one another, be there in times of support. But it's it's stressful. We've been out for... I think it's 130 days. It's certainly in that ballpark, over four months, and we've gotten one counteroffer. So it's like a pretty um, frustrating set of set of circumstances. But I do feel like most of the writers that I've talked to and actors, there, there's a lot of stress, a lot of frustration, but it's pointed in the direction of like, okay, studios, you better give us this deal because you can't do what you do without us. That's our position. I think that's true. It's almost like, you know, who's going to blink at this point because... Yeah. This has been going on a long time and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of breakthrough, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I don't think we're going to blink. If you look, hundreds of people, uh, thousands of people picketing in the streets and on the sidewalks of New York and Los Angeles, all across the United States when we hold events every day, right? Uh, I think that shows that we're not going to flinch. Okay, Josh, we really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Congratulations to Chris Evans, who had quite the weekend back in his hometown of Boston. Nobody knew this was happening. I had no, no clue. Idea. Um, but he assembled a good number of the Avengers <laughs> to watch him marry actress Alba Baptista. I didn't even know that they were a serious thing. Well, they are, because they're married. They're very serious. <laughs> yeah. And they got married in Boston, and I'll tell you, this was undercover. Yeah, you guys, they had a very, very intimate, close family and friends only. I mean, the only celebrities that were there were Robert Downey Jr., Jeremy Renner, and Chris Hemsworth, with which, which were probably like his boys, his best guys that he invited on over. I truly didn't know that they were dating. I know that there has been little glimpses and little, you know, hints here and there of who she was. A lot of people before were speculating it was Selena Gomez. They kind of look very similar. They started dating in 2021. They moved in together in oh, really? And really? now they're married. So wait, way back when months ago, when that there was someone playing piano in the hands. Yes, that was it her. was her, that not was Selena. Gomez. Oh, oh, that's so interesting. So um, right. even people like Jeremy Renner and Chris Hemsworth, they had to surrender their cell phones. Um, everybody had to uh, yeah. surrender their cell phones and so that there were so there's no pictures out, no pics. But I'm sure they'll release something. They'll post something eventually. Yeah. Congratulations. Harry Styles um, is doing something I didn't know was actually a thing. When you hear about a duck pond, you think it's just for ducks, right? No, you swim in a duck pond. I don't know. Apparently in England, swims uh, in a duck pond. But Harry Styles, uh, Harry Styles stripped down. But the uh, thing is, just look, look at Harry Styles. I mean, he's been doing something. We know the, that the, he's been the word doing, was Pilates. He's been doing Pilates, but I think that's that looks more like a Pilates bot. Does it really? I, I don't know. No, I, I mean, don't know anything about Pilates. He is just ripped. I know I couldn't do it, but wow. I don't remember him this way. If that's what you get from Pilates, maybe I should try that. I was thinking the same thing. It's low impact and whatnot. Huh. I think he's using weights too. Well, there is a heat wave over in England, so we're all benefiting from it. Is there still, by the way? Yeah. Folks in England may not be enjoying it, but if you get Harry Styles and his boxers diving into a duck pond, there you go. Who's going to complain? Okay, we will see you tomorrow.